0: The Sound of Young America's trip to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, was supported by Phillips Cinema. Celebrating short film, online at facebook.com slash Cinema. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, where the new documentary American, the Bill Hicks story is playing. If you're not familiar with Bill Hicks, um, I I would say, you know, we interview a lot of stand-up comedians here on the show. And I I guess that if you took a poll of what comedian was most influential in uh, their lives, um, Bill Hicks would probably come out on top. Uh, Hicks was uh, uh, scathing and intense and hilarious and unfortunately he died too young uh, in the mid-1990s. My guests on the show are one of the directors of the film, Matt Harlock, and uh, Bill's brother Steve Hicks. Before I talk to them, uh, let's hear uh, a clip of one of Hicks' best-known bits. It's uh, Hicks talking about marketing.
1: By the way, if anyone here is in advertising or marketing, kill yourself. Thank you. Thank, you. Thank you. Just a little thought. I'm just trying to plant seeds. Maybe. Maybe one day they'll take root. I don't know. You try. You do what you can. Kill yourself. Seriously, though. If you are, do. Uh, no, really. There's no rationalization for what you do, and you are Satan's little helpers. Okay? Kill yourself. Seriously. I know all the marketing people are going, he's doing a joke. There's no joke here whatsoever. Suck a tailpipe, hang yourself, borrow a gun from a Yank friend. I don't care how you do it. I know what all the marketing people are thinking right now, too. Oh, you know what Bill's doing? He's going for that anti-marketing dollar. That's a good market. He's very smart.
0: Uh, Matt, Steve, welcome to the Sound of Young America. Thanks, it's Hi great there. to have you here. So I, I want to ask you first, Matt. You're, this is a, uh, this is a, a, a British film. Um, and you are a Briton. I am. Um, so tell me about how th- this story came to you.
2: Well, um, as you say, Bill was someone who um, was uh, very widely revered among the comedy community, but in the UK, it, it's a slightly different thing. He's he's crossed over a little bit more. He's not mainstream or a household name, but he's definitely bigger than a cult figure. And so there was always an awareness of Bill, and, and particularly through the younger sort of generation students, and so... I was a student at university in the late eighties and early nineties when Bill was performing, and he was someone that was just very much on everybody's uh you know minds at the time because he was doing things that were you know th- th- almost um, you know, unseen before in terms of the way that he took subjects and turned them around and, and made them into new ideas in a very funny way so um, in Britain I think um, he always had that cultural significance and so as Brits as a British filmmaking team we were kind of wondering well maybe we're the ones who might actually end up getting to make this and, and um, the, the, the American um, sort of side of uh, the equation um, is something we're still working on but um, as far as the UK is concerned um, you know we are, uh, we're, we're fully supported there and the film is a, a, a UK production because that was where the impetus came from I think it's, it's where the enthusiasm and the passion for Bill lies what we're hoping to do with the film is to translate that over to the States where his message really needs to be heard Tell me,
0: tell me uh, do, do you remember uh, how you first became acquainted with his comedy? Do you remember the first time you uh, saw him perform on, on TV or, or heard one of his records?
2: Well, I, mean, the, I think the first time a lot of people saw him perform was uh, the Montreal uh, Just for Laughs um, performance, which was in um, J- July of 1992. Um, sorry, no, July of 1991. So that was a, bi- a big sort of um, landmark moment. It was kind of the thing that um, uh, has uh, gone away a little bit nowadays, the water cooler moment. I mean, I don't really have water coolers in the UK, but y- you have the, um, the, the people gathering around whatever it is they're doing and talking about this thing. And that particular TV broadcast was one that brought him to everybody's attention in the UK. And from that, it, it, he kind of sort of spiralled out into doing tours there and then coming back the following year and doing the same. So that was kind of when I was first aware of him. Um, and and he was uh, somebody who had a massive impact on almost everybody that came into contact with him at that time.
0: Describe what, it,
2: what made the, that performance so remarkable what, what struck you about it? Well, he was, um, he was programmed at the just the last festival in a program called The Nasty Show, which he wasn't particularly pleased about, and, and so uh, this is the first time that he performed there. Um, second time he went back, and he was basically given the one-man show at Montreal, and so Bruce Hills, the director of the festival, who's here later this week, um, essentially had seen him build something that needed to be given um, a, a length. He needed a, a format which was able to sort of accommodate what he was trying to do. And so the, I think the most remarkable thing about it was that I think until that time had probably very rarely seen um, full hour and a half stand-up sets. I mean, stand-up quite often tends to be made in, you know, five or ten minute chunks, and I think that the, the length of it, but also the, the, the energy which he was able to sort of capture and harness and focus and turn into these wonderful sort of riffs on subjects that weren't just about being an American. Um, and obviously he's an American comedian and he was performing in Canada, but I think that the, the thing that most struck me and the, mo- uh, and the thing that most affected me was that he was speaking about these larger and bigger subjects in an incredibly engaging way and, and it was that length i think that particular performance had just a wonderful flow to it throughout the hour and sort of 10-15 minutes which i just never seen before
0: steve hicks i um uh, something that i didn't know about your brother was that he had started performing comedy so young as a, he started performing in clubs as a teenager mm-hmm. um a, a relatively young teenager um do you remember the first time that you ever saw him perform
3: yeah, I do. I uh, I was home from college. I'm five years older than Bill, so I was probably 18 or 19, something like that, off at college, and I came home one weekend, and he said, come on down to the Comedy Club in uh, Houston, Texas, the Annex it was called, and So I went down there. Well, he was the headliner, and the place was sold out, and it was uh, unbelievable because I had no idea that that's what he had been working on. Although although there's an interesting story back then, and it is true. Bill used to write jokes, and he'd slide them under my bedroom door, and I'd (laughs) write back with a comment, you know, this isn't funny, or I get this one, or, you know, those kind of things. So early encouragement, and Bill always – would sort of reference that later on that I certainly was there and encouraged and supported him but didn't really know where all that was going what he was doing you know, he was locked himself in his bedroom but I guess that's what he was working on and so uh, I went down that first night was absolutely blown away called all my friends and told them they needed to go down there and see him and I, I remember that there was a friend of ours that had asthma and he he, uh, he evoked an asthma attack from her that night. She was laughing so hard. And I mean, she's fine. She recovered. But it was uh, he was that funny that early. You know, it was it was nice. So,
0: there's some there's some amazing footage in the film of uh, Bill Hicks performing as a teenager. Let's let's hear a little bit of it.
1: Open house night. Your parents go up to talk to your teachers. Find out you've been lying through your teenager. His name is Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Come home the next night, my father's sitting there and he goes, Hold it, moat, Vic. <laughs> I went up to school last night and I talked to your teachers and I talked to Miss Jones and she said you called her a frothing slug. <laughs> What is that all about? Dad, she's a loser. Everyone's a loser, everyone's a jerk. Tell me, Mr. Blister, who's the real loser? I promise you won't get mad, Dad.
0: What was amazing to me about seeing him perform as a teenager was not so much his his, uh, material, and he certainly wasn't the kind of comedian that he, you know, became 10 years later. But he had that same remarkable poise and engagement with the audience, which is something that you rarely see in any relatively new comedian, much less one that's 17 or 18 years old. Um, What was it like for you, Steve, to see your brother commanding an audience like that. Well, you know,
3: I don't... Back then, I was just seeing my brother. I, I don't think I could see the nuances of it. But as I watch this film now and I see him then, you know, he had perfect timing. I mean, he knew when to pause when the audience was laughing harder until he went to the next line. So it's only now that I... Really, really appreciate his uh, his uh, the technique of comedy that he had at such an early age to me, it was just watching my brother up there and I laughed as much as anyone else laughed, but you know it I have a very different perspective than most other people do, I guess being the brother in uh, I've never able to separate that I was seeing my brother you know so but but now that I watch some of these clips yeah he was he was that good that early on that's for sure so
0: as you watched his uh watch his career unfold um were you surprised at the way his style as a performer and and the content of his act changed over that first 10 years or so of his career
3: I i uh you know how I, I think how i can i can relate that is uh bill when he when bill got sober they recorded sane man. And many, many people cite that as their favorite, Bill, DVD or performance or whatever. But I even told Matt and Paul during the filming of all this, this documentary, that's not mine. And the reason for that is I think his material got so much better. He just got smarter. His material got smarter. So, yeah, I was very aware of uh, of how that was growing along the way, uh, um and um, but you know he was always smart, so I guess it wasn't a total surprise. But what I used to do is I'd seen him perform so many times and was familiar with his material. I used to just love walking around and watching the audience, you know, because they they were hearing some things for the first time in a comedy club anyway, in that in that arena. And uh, I would just love to hear their comments and their gasps and their feedback and things like that because they were certainly whether they realized it or not, they were seeing some groundbreaking things in a, in the comedy clubs, you
0: know. So. there's there's a clip in the film um that was uh something that was r- really amazing and intense to see it 's uh Bill performing uh before he got sober and uh, you mentioned that he got sober he uh, uh, he got pretty heavy into uh, uh drinking and using before he got sober mm-hmm. um, and, and there 's a clip of him uh, uh, talking about an ex-girlfriend. Uh, it may be a real ex-girlfriend, or it may be a, an invented one for the stage. Um, it, uh, uh, let's hear that.
1: girlfriend. Oh, my girlfriend. Thanks, pal. Throw salt on the fucking wound. Thanks a lot. Why don't you just come up here and throw salt on it? Huh? Here. Here's my heart. Throw salt. Come on. Dig it in. Yeah, my girlfriend left me five years. I loved her more than anything in the world, and she just split up. You ever have remember your first love? Isn't that hurt? Isn't it hard to get over? And I think it helped my career uh, when she left me. Because I'm a driven man now. I'm driven by a fantasy that one day this girl who I love more than anyone in the world, and I gave my heart to, and she spat upon it and spun out the door. One day this girl was going to be living in a trailer park somewhere in Oklahoma. <laughs> swampy trailer ground with clouds of AIDS mosquitoes swarming around blocking out the light from the sun. She has like nine naked little kids with rickets. They got furs in their hair and jam on their face and rats laying babies in their ears. <laughs> And they bring home dead animals beside the road to eat. And she lives with this ex-welder, doesn't have a job, he's got fur all over his back. He's fat like 600 pounds and he makes love to her with a broom handle at night. And one night he's gonna be romancing her with that stick and his heart is gonna explode and she's trapped under 600 pounds of flaccid sweating. Fish belly, cellulite, that's moving like the tides of the ocean. His blood and phlegm and bile pours out of his mouth and nose into her face. Into her face. And just before she drowns in that vomit, she turns to the TV and I'm going to be on it.
0: <laughs> Watching that was almost, um, almost scary to me. Because it's such an intense personal performance it's also not really funny <laughs> um, uh, what was it what was it like for you Matt to be looking at this looking at this footage of I mean this is like like it, it borders on not a comedy performance it's like a different thing it's just like a, a wild intense venting what was it like for you to for you to look at the, look at that footage as someone who, who knew who knew the
2: kicks of you know the the sober hicks of of 5 years later um, I suppose the well, the thing about the the routine itself is that um, watching it with an audience um, is something that really has to be seen, um, because whilst it might seem that it's bitter um, and that it's uh, maybe not comedy, um, the effect on an audience is really quite stunning. Um, Bill used to talk about the uh, the person on stage, um, like the Greeks, um, used putting um, quite sort of visceral and um, uh, you know a, a quite far out material in his shows because it released the demons of shame, and I think that that's what. Bill Bill was doing in that routine, is that basically he was saying, well, this is how far I'm going to go, and I'm going to see how far I can take you. And the effect on an audience, which we've seen several times now, of people who don't know and hadn't known Bill before, is just one of this rising gasp, which is then let out at the end in this wonderful kind of release. So um, I'm not sure that, it isn't, that, that it's not not comedy. I think it absolutely is comedy, and I think it's what comedy was designed to do. Um, in terms of um, looking at that compared to his his sober self, there are differences because, um, you know, maybe he's a little less in control of um, what the uh, the outcome is going to be, but I, I don't know that because I wasn't there performing at the time as he was. Um, but I think that the intensity was still there, and I think that what he was able to learn from being uh, out there on the dark side of, uh, uh, you know, abuse and, 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 and drinking was that there was an intensity that could be harnessed, which he could still tap into, even when he had become sober, but there was just more control there. I mean, I don't know what you think, Steve. Was that the, the, the kind of sort of way that you'd seen him go from, from sober to, to, to clean?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I I think we were less aware of the severity of his problem until later because, like I say in the, in the film as well, that when Bill was around us as the family, he didn't bring any of that. He didn't show up at the door with a six-pack or anything like that. He was very... You know, he was very much part of our family. You see a lot of clips in the film with the family. We very much wanted to get that out there because I think that's a side of Bill that, you know, really hasn't been shown much. But, but it uh, you know, he was always – I don't know that I considered it darker or not darker. It, you know, I don't know. Maybe it was more uh, – maybe the, maybe the uh, progression was a little more subtle. Uh, being that close to it, I don't know that particular bit that we that you just talked about. I heard someone describe it, not me, but someone describe it as dark poetry. Just the images that it conjures up is just a certain kind of poetry. I read somewhere, you know, so that's how some
0: people saw it. When you when you know your brother Steve as um, the guy, and, and like you said, there's some really just wonderful footage of uh, and photos of, of um, your family just hanging out together. Um, When you know your brother as that guy, what's it like to see him doing 11 out of 10 darkness and intensity on stage? Yeah, well, you know, that was on stage. That was on stage.
3: And so when he came off stage, we'd go get a hamburger or something or go pick up the kids and take them to the zoo, you know, whatever. So, it. Uh, but, you know, he was that intense. I mean, we could sit around the, the dinner table and have intense converse. He believed what he believed, but I think it was certainly amped up quite a bit to perform. He was a performer. You know, we should not lose sight of that. And uh, he amped it up to get up and perform on stage. But when he came off, you know, it was over. That was it. And uh, he was just Bill, you know. So.
0: I I want to play uh, another clip that's featured in the film. This is uh, Bill Hicks uh, uh, a few years later uh, talking about essentially the spirit of rock and roll.
1: They say rock and roll is the devil's music. Well, let's say that it is. I got news for you. Let's say that rock and roll is the devil's music and we know it for a fact to be absolutely unequivocally true. Boy, at least he fucking jams <laughs> Okay, did you hear that correctly? If it's a choice between eternal hell and good tunes Or eternal heaven and new kids on the block I'm going to be surfing on the lake of fire, rocking out Oh, come on, Bill, they're the new kids Don't pick on them, they're so good, they're so clean cut And they're such a good image for the children Fuck that when did mediocrity and banality become a good image for your children? I want my children to listen to people who fucking rocked! I don't care if they died in puddles of their own vomit!
3: I want someone who plays from his fucking heart! <clears throat> I am available
1: for children's parties right
0: now. It seems like that, um, that period of um, being slightly out of control really informed his more controlled performances later that he he that he in a way learned from those experiences learned how to um use use that intensity in a way that was more focused and effective how did you how did you see matt the um uh,
2: the change in his style after after he became uh, after he got sober uh, well i think um uh, david jondro in the film um says it perfectly which is that um you know he he was just now perfectly choreographed there were no breaks it was it was um a, a a transformation in terms of control um not a diminishing of energy or a diminishing of intensity it was it was just more about crafting and more about being able to take the audience with him, so I mean th- there are uh, loads of really good examples of that, but it 's um something that his friends who were with him you know whilst he was um, in the, the darker period of his uh, performing career. And then, you know, having seen him sort of come out of this cocoon, um, they just remarked upon his energy and upon his, um, you know, sort of now clarity of thinking, which was able to then start informing, I think, his material. I mean, you, you noticed a sort of a sea change in terms of what he was um, looking at material-wise and how he was able to take um, ideas and, and, and distill them down from great big complex issues into these wonderful kind of upside-down um, sort of versions of what you thought a subject matter was about. And so suddenly you have these people coming away with a wonderful new view of a subject. So I think that that, that improved um, and that he was able to keep the intensity, but he was he was just more in control, that he was able to sort of you know, bring people along in a more controlled way, and that meant he could go further. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.
0: The Sound of Young America's trip to South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, was supported by Phillips Cinema. Celebrating short film, online at facebook.com slash Phillips Cinema. Our special thanks to The Mansion at Judges Hill in Austin, Texas, for providing us with space to record our shows and videos. You can find them online at mansionatjudgeshill.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're at the South by Southwest Film Festival, where uh, uh, which has been featuring American, the Bill Hicks story, the story of the um, uh, pioneering rebel comedian uh, Bill Hicks. Joining me are, are one of the film's directors, Matt Harlock, and uh, Steve Hicks, uh, Bill's brother. Steve, um, this movie is so rich with this very personal material about bill and um it's one of those movies that it's very clear could not have been made without uh you and and your family's support and um you know i'm i'm presuming that you're still supporting it given how happy you seemed about it and the fact that you and your you and your mother are are sitting in this room right now um what made you what made you trust these guys to tell bill's story Uh Uh,
3: Here we go. They've asked me that same question for years. No, but also you mentioned the family. I want to point out, you know, I'm the one sitting here talking, and it's a great honor, and I love, you know, we love talking about and supporting Bill. But my mother, who's in the studio here today, Mary and my sister Lynn, who's also involved in this, my father Jim, who passed away a few years ago. But, you know, we're who's left of the immediate Hicks family, and and we uh, really do our best to uphold Bill's legacy and hold him in the esteem that everyone around the world does. But, But to answer your question about how we trusted these guys, you know we this came about started 12 years after Bill died. So in those years, we, we certainly had plenty of opportunities to do a lot of things, and we were always very reticent. We were not out there much in the public eye with Bill. It's it's kind of a tightrope to walk because we don't want to seem self-serving, but we certainly want to keep, you know, as, as more and more people want to know about Bill, we want to keep supplying them that information. But Matt, uh, a few years ago, started tribute nights to Bill in the U.K. on the anniversary of his death and they were huge successes and on one of those he uh, had set up around the perimeter of the comedy club where it was i guess a, a wall of poster board and asked all the people in attendance to write on there their thoughts about what bill meant to them and it was just this you know this massive project with hundreds of people that wrote it well he folded that up and shipped that over to my mother and father so that was a real uh, sincere an endearing kind of a move and then and then it you know the emails and communications back and forth about that and then before we know it here we are and uh and, you know, it was just something about the way Matt and, and then when Paul came along just presented that they were, they were only here for one reason and it was to get Bill's story out to the rest of the world. They thought it was worth telling. It wasn't a monetary thing. It wasn't going to be a feather in their cap. It wasn't going to be nice on their portfolio going forward. And these are all arguments we've heard from other people before. So, you know, and we've gotten to know these guys over the years. We've met their families and, uh, you know, they're just great people. In America, we call them salt of the earth. I don't know what they call them in Britain, but over here they're so, and we just really enjoy them. And they're, I know how committed they are, and what they've uh, given up and sacrificed, and applied themselves to this project. So we certainly feel we've made a good decision here.
0: Your uh, your brother Bill died of um, pancreatic cancer in uh, in 1994, and um, when he was sick, he he wasn't public about right being sick. Um, did you see how he? Um, did you see how he evaluated his priorities when, when he found out that he, he was sick and, and sick to the extent that he was probably going to die?
3: Yeah, sure. And first of all, I think that, you know, he didn't tell people, he told the immediate family and no one else. And I think because a, he thought he was going to beat it. He was very optimistic uh, that was just his nature. In spite of what some people might think about his comedy, he certainly his life was full of optimism and hope. But uh, and also he did not he he was going to keep working, and he did not want to be distracted. He felt that everywhere he went, people would be offering advice, oh try this, or my uncle had cancer and did that, and those kind of things. And he just didn't want that distraction. He wanted to go out and do his comedy, I and mean, he was true to the true to the art form to the bitter end, you know. And uh, and then also and like like we say in the film, I mean, without a doubt, when he found out, he was diagnosed in June of '93, and by August of '93, he was moving back home to my parents in Little Rock. I mean, that you know, the priority of the the foundation of our family and knowing that love and support was going to be there, uh, he prioritized getting back to his family, and that was abundantly clear at that point, and um, and. Uh, you know, and, and then his comedy. I mean, that you know, that is what he did. That is what he was tapped on the shoulder to do in this world was to be a that kind of a comedian, and that's that's what he did up until he could not do it. Literally, could not do it anymore. I mean, as the story goes, it was mid January, and Bill died in February of ninety four, and he went up at Carolines in New York City. On Broadway there for about fifteen or twenty minutes, and then just literally could not go any further, and left the stage. And that's not that was not filmed, but that was the last time. You know, so he, I mean, he literally did it until he just was not able anymore, and that was always his life's priority as far as that side of it went. So,
0: man, in a way, it's it's those priorities that he he made so clear when he was, um, you know, sick to the point of his eventual death that the, that the movie is about it's a, it's about those things that he was so passionate about his his comedy and that speaking truth and and also family
2: yeah i think that the um the the sort of the the dual um, sort of Points that you touched on there, sort of the the, the centrality of family, and also this um, idea of a search for um, meaning, um, and that I think applies to um, you know life and to uh, you know his friendships and to his relationships. But he he it was kind of singular in that purpose. I mean, he he seemed to be the kind of person who lived his life with meaning, and I think that that's why he draws people to him it's it's the kind of thing that people look at and go "Mm, you know i really kind of feel i'd like to have something of that in my life um so yeah it's a very attractive um uh personality trait for somebody it's it's to actually say yes you know life is worth living and it's and it's meaningful um so i think that that was something that applied not into his comedy but also to his yeah to his personal life
0: yeah Let's hear Bill Hicks uh, performing one last time another of his best-known bits. It's called It's Just a Ride. Is
1: there a point to my ass? I would say there is. I have to. The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. And the ride goes up and down and round and round. It has thrills and chills, and it's very brightly colored, and It's very loud and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time, and they begin to question, is this real, or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered, and they come back to us, and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid, ever, because this is just a ride, and we kill those people. (laughs) Shut him up. We have a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account. In my family, this has to be real. It's just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok? But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to Put bigger locks on your door, buy guns, close yourself off. The eyes of love, instead see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now, to a better ride. Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over. Not one human being excluded, and we can explore space (laughs) together, both inner and outer, forever. In peace. Thank you very much. You've been great. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much.
0: Matt, uh, Steve, thank you so much for being on The Sound of Young America. It was great to have you. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate thank you very it. much for having us on. Uh, Matt Harlock is uh, one of the directors and uh, Steve Hicks, the brother of uh, the subject of the new documentary film uh, American, The Bill Hicks Story, uh, which is playing right here in Austin, Texas at the South by Southwest Film Festival as we record this. Thanks again, guys. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking into Microphones. Our director and producer at South by Southwest was Nick White. Our videographer was Benjamin Harrison. And you can view absolutely 100% for free and share videos of all of our interviews on today's program and, indeed, all of our interviews at South by Southwest. Just visit us online at MaximumFun.org and click on The Sound of Young America. If you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.